Um, on the back of your bulletin, the, the title of this sermon is The Cup and Our Cups. And I was originally thinking that this sermon would have two parts. Um, the first part talking about the cup that Jesus prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane and what that cup means and all of that it uh, signifies and symbolizes for us. And then to talk about our cups, that each of us have our own cups of suffering that we have to take in and to endure and to face in our own life in the way that, that Jesus is drinking of the cup and willingness to say, your will be done to the Father, how that is um, a model and example for us to follow. But as I was preparing yesterday, I feel like the first half of the sermon about this cup that Jesus prayed for in the garden um, was plenty for us to take in today. And so this title, the title of the sermon is just The Cup, The Cup That Jesus Prays About in, in the Garden. And I'd like to ask for you to join with me as we begin by praying the Lord's Prayer together as we pray together, and we'll, we'll use the word sins in the place for debts or trespasses or sins. We'll use that together as we pray the Lord's Prayer right now. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So today we're going to look at this story of Jesus in Gethsemane. And this is the, the last night before his death. The Passover celebration has finished in the upper room where he taught his disciples everything that he wanted them to know before he left. And that night, the disciples heard some very strange and difficult things for them to hear. He talked a lot about how he was going to die. He talked about how one of them was going to betray him. He talked about how all of them are going to scatter away from him and they're going to all fall away. And all of them in their own hearts know that they couldn't possibly do that to their Lord. And so they're very confused about all of these things that he's saying about him dying, about them falling away and abandoning him. And they leave the upper room, that Passover meal that night, and they, they walk along the dusty roads of Jerusalem outside of the city gates, and they go to a place called Gethsemane. It's an olive grove, and, and nearby is an olive press where they make olive oil. And it was a familiar place to them. They actually spent time there before, and I suspect that some of them may have actually been believed to be in a familiar place after they've been hearing all of these strange things that Jesus has been talking about. And none of them could have imagined as they were there in Gethsemane, all of the things that would happen that night and the next day. Can you imagine with me for a moment what it must have been like for the disciples that night? What were they thinking after all that they heard from Jesus? Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus, as they left the upper room and took this walk to Gethsemane, about a 30 or 45 minute walk away from the city to this olive grove. It was getting dark. 
The sun was setting, and he knew that it was his last night. He made that very clear to his disciples, even if they were unwilling to accept it. Can you imagine what that walk was like for him that night? When they get to Gethsemane, they begin to settle in for the night. And over the years, we've begun to call this place the Garden of Gethsemane, as if the garden was called Gethsemane. But that's not quite right. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And Jesus and his disciples have come to a garden, a cultivated olive grove, and next to this olive grove was a place where the olives were pressed and where the olive oil was processed. And there was a large olive press that was this big stone rock that they would put the the olives on to press out the oil of the olives. And then there was this system of of rooms and caves that the olives would then go into, and they would go into these vats where the oil and the water and the acids were all separated, and they would skim the oil off of the top of these vats. And one of these caves is called a Gethsemane which means oil press. And so Jesus and his disciples were most likely staying in one of these man-made caves that was an oil press. Maybe it was rented out or maybe someone let them use it. We don't know. But the disciples were not likely to be sleeping under the stars in a garden, but in the shelter in this man-made cave cut into the rock called a Gethsemane, a oil press, where they processed the olive oil from the olive groves nearby. And so Jesus and the disciples go to this Gethsemane, this oil press cave, and they settle in for the night, and Jesus decides that he is going to go out and pray. But he doesn't want to go alone. And so he takes three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and he asks them, if you'd come out with me into the garden where I'm going to go and pray. So they leave the Gethsemane, and they walk out into the garden, into this olive grove, and Jesus asks them to keep watch as he goes and prays to his Father. The Lord's Prayer The prayer that we just prayed together, this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and that he teaches us for how to pray as a model for prayer, this prayer, it comes alive in the life of Jesus. You can take each line of the Lord's Prayer and find moments in Jesus' life where he lives out that request where he trusts his Father for provision, trusts his Father for daily bread. Times where he practices forgiving his enemies, practices where in his actions and his teaching, where he sees where we see the kingdom of God coming. And Jesus's prayer always comes alive, comes alive in Jesus's own life. His words and his prayer become also his actions. And there is one line in the Lord's prayer that comes alive in the garden. And it is the prayer, your will be done. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. And on this night, he prays this prayer himself at least three times. 
prays to the Father, sees that there is some cup, some ordeal, some trial that he is going to endure, and he's going to have to drink some cup. And at least three times he asks, Father, if you can take this cup from me, please do it. But not my will, but your will be done. In this moment, on this last night, Jesus showed us that he knows how hard that prayer is. How excruciating it can be to pray this prayer. Your will be done. Father, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows, he knows how difficult and painful this prayer can be to surrender ourselves to the Lord's will. To surrender our own flesh, to surrender our need to avoid pain. He knows. He knows how hard it is to pray this prayer of surrender. Father, your will be done. This is sometimes the most difficult prayer that we can pray. Let's read the story. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There's something interesting in this story to me in verse 37. It says that as he was walking along, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. There's something that changes here in this moment for him. He is suddenly struck with sorrow, a unique sort of sorrow. There is something new that happens in this moment, some new awareness that comes to his heart and mind. There's something that happens right here. In the message, Peterson um, paraphrases this by saying that Jesus is plunged into agonizing sorrow. Jesus tells his disciples that he is so overwhelmed with sorrow that he feels like he is going to die right then and there. Right there, this grief, this agony, this distress and sorrow in that moment makes him feel like he is going to die. 
In the Gospel of Luke, it says that as he is praying in this moment, that he is eventually drenched with sweat that is sweating blood. So much distress. What is going on here? Why does this happen? Why does this overwhelming, crushing sorrow come upon him? Why did it begin here at this moment? Jesus has been telling his disciples for months and months that he is going to die. Jesus knows that he is going to be hung up on a cross. He knows that crucifixion is waiting for him. And he is known for a really long time. And he has been sure and certain and resolute. His face has been set toward Jerusalem for a long time ready to go to Jerusalem and die. And now in this moment, something happens. Something changes. Jesus has some new awareness that comes over him. Something enters into his mind and his heart that completely and totally overwhelms him. For most of us, when we think about the crucifixion, we think about the physical pain that Jesus must have endured. We think about the nails and the scourging and the crown of thorns placed on his head, and we cannot imagine the excruciating pain that he must have experienced. And none of that can be minimized. It is as terrible and horrific as we can imagine. But here's the thing. We know that there are many, many, many of Jesus' followers over the centuries who have been tortured and abused, whose bodies have been ripped and torn and shredded, who have experienced whips and raking over their skin and nails driven into their hands and fire burning their flesh. And there are hundreds of accounts of these martyrs who are ready and prepared for that, welcomed that suffering, So many of them who were not on the night before begging the Father to take that from them, but were resolute in entering into that suffering. But here, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, on the eve of his death, is trembling and reeling and distressed to the point of sweating blood because of what he is about to face. Question is, why? Why is it that so many of Jesus' followers face their own martyrdom with less distress and trembling than Jesus did? What's going on here? What I suggest to you is this, that no one ever has or ever will Face a death like Jesus faced. On that night, Jesus was not distressed to the point of sweating blood because of the physical suffering he was about to endure. He has been ready and prepared for that physical suffering for a very long time. There was something else that suddenly hit him. What was it? It was the cup. It was the cup. Three times Jesus prays about this cup, and he asks for this cup to pass from him. He prayed to the Father that he would not have to drink it in desperation, asked the Father to spare him from drinking this cup. 
But underneath that desperation, underneath that desire to avoid whatever this cup is, underneath that was this desire to do the will of the Father, not my will, but yours be done. But what is this cup? What is this trial that he's about to face that's symbolized by drinking this cup that he is so distressed to drink? And why is it that the Father answers Jesus' prayer not by removing the cup from him, but by requiring him to drink it? This cup, whatever it means for him to drink it, whatever the trial is, is at the very heart of Jesus' entire purpose. This cup is his reason. It is his vocation, it is his mission, it is his purpose. Whatever it means for him to drink this cup, it is critical and essential for your salvation and for mine and for the salvation of the whole world. So what is this cup? What is so distressing to Jesus about it in this moment? Why was it necessary for him to drink? This cup holds all of the consequences of human sin, which results in complete and total separation from God. And this is the difference between the death of Jesus on the cross and the spiritual realities that are taking place on that, in that moment while he was on the cross that is different from all of the martyrs in the history of the world that came after him. Jesus' death is going to cause him to experience separation from God, where the martyrs believed that their death was going to bring them closer to God. And that difference makes all the difference. Jesus is about to experience, with drinking this cup, separation from God. And maybe you think, well, that doesn't sound all that bad. But friends, it is hell. Separation from God is separation from love. It is separation from affection. Separation from God is complete and total abandonment and loss. It is grief and disappointment without any consolation. It is sorrow upon sorrow. It is complete isolation and aloneness. And this is what Jesus is about to face. This is the content of the cup that he is about to drink. And on that night, as he's walking toward prayer, it seems that the weight of that reality strikes his soul in a way that it never had before. Jesus, the Son of God, who lived forever in perfect relationship with the Father, is now going to experience being cut off from the Father. He is going to experience the abandonment and loss and disappointment and grief and sorrow upon sorrow that comes from being separated from God, who is love. On the cross, he is going to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, he is going to experience the just consequence of our sin by being forsaken by the Father. 
The Son has only known the love of the Father for all eternity, has only known unity and connection and joy together with the Father forever and ever. And now, in the garden, as he leaves the oil press and walks out into the garden of prayer, he begins to realize all that he is going to lose as he takes on the consequence of sin on himself. And on this night in the garden, he is beginning to get a taste of the isolation and abandonment of the cross. His friend Judas has already betrayed him. He sees into the future and knows that Peter is going to deny him. He sees and he knows that all of his friends are going to scatter. And in this moment when he just needs his three closest friends to stay with him, to just keep watch with him, to just be there with him in his grief, they're asleep. He's beginning to experience a taste of the aloneness and the isolation that comes from being separated from God. Jesus, who has only known heaven, only known the presence of the Father and the overflowing, never-ending joy and love that comes from the Father is here in the garden beginning to be plunged into hell. And from this moment in the garden until he says it is finished, every step he takes is one step deeper and deeper into hell. From this moment, Jesus experienced all of the worst things that human beings could ever experience. He is betrayed, abandoned, and denied by his closest friends. That in and of itself is one of the worst things that we can experience in life, to be betrayed by those who are closest to us. And that is just the beginning for him. He is arrested by a murderous and riotous mob of people who hate him and who are wrongfully accusing him, and they know it. He bears the weight of a trial without an impartial jury, jury, but a trial in the face of self-seeking judges who do not care anything about justice. And then he endures the insults of crowds, of anonymous people, who may or may not even know him, but who have come along to join in the fun of tormenting him. He is completely exposed to the brutality of soldiers and whatever cruelty they decide at their own whim. And then he endured crucifixion, which was specifically designed by the Romans to be the most painful and most humiliating experience a person could have. It is a death by suffocation while hanging exposed on a pole. Crucifixion was designed to be out in the open and in public. It's up on a hill, and he's raised up so that people can see the body naked and exposed for anyone to look at. And he goes through all of this that I've just described as someone who is completely innocent, completely and intentionally misunderstood and wrongly accused of crimes he did not commit. He did nothing wrong, and the people then chose someone who they knew was a criminal 
to be set free instead of him. Jesus' passion is his entry into hell. What we read about what he endured is the absence of love. It's the absence of tenderness. It's the absence of care. It is the absence of joy. It is the absence of connection with people. It is an experience of being completely and utterly and totally alone. And in the garden, as he begins to fall to his knees in prayer, he becomes completely aware of what he is about to endure. This is the cup. This is the cup that he does not want to drink. This is the cup that he asks the Father to take from him, but that he is willing to drink if it is the Father's will. And he drinks it. He drinks all of it. And he drinks it because if he doesn't, then you and I will have to. And what we see over and over and over again in the scriptures is that sin separates us. It separates us from God. This relationship of joy and intimacy that we're we're made for is destroyed because of sin. Our connection with God, who is the source of all love and all tenderness and all affection and all care. Our connection with him is broken because of our sin. And he drinks the cup of separation and aloneness so that you and I don't have to. He drinks it for us. He takes in himself, in his passion, in his decision to say yes to the Father's will, he takes on the consequences of our sin. In his own body, in his own heart, in his soul, he takes on the separation and death that are the real and just consequences of our sin. He enters into it and endures it, goes through it for us so that we don't have to. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing.